This is season two of My Only Story. It is a co-production between the My Only Story non-profit company and News24. If you'd like to donate towards our work, please visit our website at myonlystory.org. You can support us in other ways by reviewing, liking and sharing the podcast and helping to spread the word. You can also engage with us on our social platforms or message us confidentially on 071-382-7030. We'd love to hear from you. This is a trigger warning. If you are a survivor of abuse, or if you know the people involved in the story, this podcast could be hard to listen to. It also discusses suicide and suicidal ideation, which some people might find troubling. Also note that this episode contains swearing. If anything comes up for you while listening to this episode, please find someone to talk to at myonlystory.org. It is a Wednesday morning in August, more than three years ago, and we are in Bloemfontein, in central South Africa. David McKenzie wakes up in a room at the Sokru Bossi Guest House, a 10-minute drive from Grey College. He's just got a gig as a water polo consultant at the school. Soon, he'd be appointed permanently. But on this August morning in 2018, a month after he left St Andrews College in Graemestown, David McKenzie's fresh start in Bloemfontein is interrupted by news from home. As has often been the case before, the news is not something that McKenzie can keep to himself. To be fair, the news is juicy. It concerns Dean Carlser. Remember Dean Carlser? A few months ago he was detained in Australia for the alleged sexual grooming of a minor boy. This is Australia's Seven News. Dean Carrells. He means Dean Carlson. Court this morning as expected. The 40-year-old was arrested on March 20 after police raided his Malula Bar home. Carrells was a former teacher in Budrum. He was also a prominent water polo coach. But two and a half years before his arrest at Pearson High in Port Elizabeth, star coach Dean Carlson has managed to get himself into a load of trouble. And from a bedroom in the Sokrabosi guesthouse near Grey College in Bloemfontein, David McKenzie starts to spread the news via a barrage of WhatsApps and voice notes and phone calls and screen grabs. Then it is 8.28am and McKenzie sends a voice note to a former colleague at St Andrews College in Grahamstown. It is not a teacher who has featured in this podcast before. Oh shit, there's trouble in Pearson again. I don't know what uh, Dean Carls has done now. But uh, looks like he's he's done it. He's done it. He's done it. Um, interesting times, and I'm telling you now, Pearson are going to offer me something because they haven't got Luke, and that's going to be a fuck up, a complete, complete mess up. Are you looking forward to holidays? What are your plans? Imagine you received this voice note regarding a mutual acquaintance called Dean. How would you respond? I think most of us would say something like, "What do you mean, Dean has done it? He's done it. He's done it." But that is not the reaction of David McKenzie's former colleague at St. Andrews. I will tell you this for free. The teacher is not surprised. Also, he is not the only one who isn't. Who knew about Dean Carlser and when? Could the tale of Carlser shed some light on what happens below the surface in the water polo world? I need to dig deep into McKenzie's past, dig deep into his high school years in the company of Dean Carlser. But will all the guessing and probing land me in a world of trouble? I'm Dion Wiggett, and this is My Only Story, a podcast and a live investigation. On my stoop in Johannesburg, things are heating up. It's springtime in South Africa, as events grow even more manic at St Andrews College in Grahamstown and also at other schools in the Eastern Cape and beyond. As our live investigation hones in on some rotten apples in schools, it's important to me that we retain a sense of context. The series is about children and the adults who hunt them. It is not about teachers in general, or any school in particular. I really do have nothing against schools. I'm not trying to destroy St Andrews College, or Grey College, or Grey High School, or Pearson High, or Red and Bedford View. 
We're here to contemplate an apparent culture of secrecy and silence that seems to be alive and well at some elite schools. A culture where, it seems to me, the safety of boys and girls is often considered less important than a school's so-called reputation. Children should always come first. Reputation is nothing if it means that children are exposed to danger. I have nothing against teachers either. Quite the opposite. I'm a big fan of teachers. It is one of the world's few truly noble professions. Trouble is, there's a handful of bad teachers always sprinkled around the rest. Most teachers want to help children. A handful of teachers are there to help themselves. Predators go to where children are. And children go to school. On my stoop in Johannesburg, seven months ago, I am painstakingly trying to keep track. In front of me lies a heap of data I have somehow managed to secure. It is from the source I've casually been calling Deep Throat. At the end of this episode, Deep Throat's identity will be revealed. But before all that action starts, I want to take us back in time to the Eastern Cape and to the year 2002. Grey High School in Port Elizabeth often is, but should not, be confused with Grey College in Bloemfontein, which is incredibly similar, but is a good seven hours drive inland into central South Africa. Both Grey High in PE and Grey College in Bloem were founded in the 1850s by Sir George Grey, a gentleman with the apparent self-confidence to name two schools after himself. Where Grey College may have provincial splendour in spades, Grey High in PE is borderline dramatic. You'll want to open Google Earth for this one. In the search bar, type in Grey, and then also High School, lest you end up at Grey College in Bloemfontein. Grey High School is not Grey College, even though, in a further complication, Grey High School is located on College Drive in Port Elizabeth. Please rotate the image so that College Drive is at the bottom. Looking out over the lawns, we see the black roofs of Grey High School and, to its left, the smaller red roofs of Grey Junior School. In the middle of the high school cluster is a tall clock tower. And let me tell you, the Google Earth imagery does not quite convey how fabulous the clock tower is. Twice this year, with producers Alison Pope and Noctula Magnati, I drive round and round the Grey High campus. Both times, school is coming out and the traffic is almost a jam. It provides plenty of opportunity to check out the school and the boys pouring from it. We spend quite a bit of time stuck at a pedestrian crossing as boys from Grey Junior file across the road. They are all wearing hats and, at each and every vehicle that each and every boy passes, he tips his hat and smiles at everyone he can see in the car. It really is quite charming, although I imagine it must be hard to teach young boys to be that respectful. Later, we get stuck in more traffic but now on College Drive at the high school side. Ahead of us is the fabulous clock tower, but right next to us are two swimming pools. The smaller pool is set right against the road, and as we inch forward through the traffic, I can see a few boys, maybe 12 or 13 years old, practicing in their speedos. And so, behold, the historic Grey High. It is the school where David Smith would meet his first boyfriend, whose name is Dean Carlson. My name is David Smith. I'm 40 years old and I'm a self-employed advocate in Port Elizabeth. I started at grade junior school in 1987, grade one, and thereafter went to Gray High School from 1995 until 1999. Dean Carlson and I were in the same lift club we started school in grade one. His father used to collect me to take me to school from my house in Glendenningvale. We were in the same grade. He's a little bit older than me, though. Are you friends at school? Maybe we were friendly in the very beginning, in like grade one or, or something like that. Um, he was much more sporty than me, even then. And he branched off with his own friends. 
he was incredibly friendly, he was approachable, he was a very affable person. His nickname was Buddy, primarily because he was just friends with everyone. He was just an all-round nice person. Is there a time that you can remember where his bearing towards you changed? He left PE to go to Stellenbosch for a year after school, um, immediately after school. And we corresponded over email in that time and struck up a, a friendship that turned intimate. Dean Carlser was David Smith's first boyfriend, but not, he says, in any normal way. We see each other very much on the down low, very closeted, very, very clandestine and secretive. It was not intimacy in the sense that you would understand the term between a traditional couple. It was quite literally like a grinder hookup. Grinder is a hookup app for gay men. Purely casual, purely uh, sexual. And then it is 2002, and what a year it would turn out to be. Quick heads up, most of our story today is set in three years, 2002, 2018 and 2021. Those are the years to remember to navigate this episode's drama, 2002, 2018 and this year, 2021. And so let's pick up our historical story in 2002. As the world adjusts to life without the World Trade Center, a 13-year-old David McKenzie starts his career at Gray High School in Port Elizabeth. In the Grand Hall of Gray High School, it is the first assembly of the 2002 school year. Hundreds of boys are staring at the stage as the faculty file in. I'm pretty sure that Gray's headmaster at the time, Neil Crawford, welcomes the new boys and new members of staff. I imagine he also welcomes a new student teacher with an old familiar name. It is Mr. Dean Carlser, who was in matric at Grey High when 40% of the boys in front of him were in grade 8 and in grade 9. And so, with fond memories and big ambitions, Dean Carlser will start to coach water polo. But first, he'll move into the hostel to supervise the boys who live there. After he takes up a position at Gray, he invites me over to the school hostel after midnight. I would park in McLean Road and then hop over a fence. I always take care to wear dark sneakers, dark trousers and dark shirt. And I walk not through the field, but on, always on the periphery. I hug the, the hedges, the trees. I go past the rectory, always in the shadows, always lurking. And, and I have the code to get into the staff entrance of the school hostel. By the time David Smith gets to Dean's room, he's no longer certain why he goes to all the trouble. Dean's interest in him is cursory, and his sexual fantasies are getting stranger. David Smith is deeply conflicted. On the one hand, he's actually dating his schoolboy crush. On the other hand, his boyfriend seems to have a crush on schoolboys. On the 2nd of October 2002, the 2nd of October is significant because that's his birthday. he just turned 22. On the night of his birthday, he asks me whether I can bring my family member to join us because he wants to show the boy the ropes and to teach him. How old is this family member? 13 years old. How do you respond to this message? I've told him that I'm not bringing the 13-year-old with me. And he then sends a response to say that I'm chicken and that I must come, wimp. Dean Carlson would not let it go. He keeps asking David Smith to bring a 13-year-old family member for a threesome in his room. Then things take a turn for the worse. He sends me a message to say that he had a sexual experience with a grade 9 boy at the Grey High School hostel. He describes it to me as being cool, K-E-W-L, almost being quite boastful of it. 
and as though trying to entice me into that, through that doorway. It is spring 2002 at Grey High in Port Elizabeth. In Dean Corals' own telling, this is what happened. He is in his room at the hostel when a grade nine boy comes in to visit. Later, Dean tells David Smith about it in an exchange that is so unsubtle that only an inexperienced predator would commit it to writing. In all caps, Dean Carlson writes to David Smith, quote, had an interesting event in my room today with a standard seven boy, end quote. Standard seven is what grade nine used to be called. Dean Carlson continues, quote, my salad's been tossed today already, if you know what I mean, end quote. Then, six minutes later, Dean Carlson sends a clarification. Quote, Sorry, think I should rephrase that. I was tossing his salad. Maybe it will be reversed, who knows. No one tossed my salad. End quote. Soon, David Smith will report Dean Carlson to the headmaster of Grey High. His name, remember, is Neil Crawford. David Smith shows him these messages, and plenty else too. In the weeks to come, the truth will come out. Which is this. Headmaster Neil Crawford is seemingly not one to be alarmed by reports of salad tossing. When Dean Carlson sends his ex-boyfriend the dubious texts of 2002, there is still 17 years left of his career as polo coach and teacher. But it's over now. In June 2021, three months after his arrest, Carlson's bail is revoked after Australian police start to examine his phone and find evidence of sexual grooming in an Instagram conversation. This is a central point. You need to know what sexual grooming looks like. If you know how to spot sexual grooming in action, you can save the lives of children. To help us understand, I speak to an expert witness who, somewhat annoyingly, has a voice that is deeper than mine. My name is Luke Lamprecht and I'm a child protection expert. I've been in the field for about 30 years and I'm currently the head of advocacy for women and men against child abuse. Luke Lambrecht is an activist, academic and expert witness in notorious trials like this one from 2018. This news just in a short while ago, a former Parktown Boys High School water polo coach sentenced to 23 years in prison. This is ENCA. 22-year-old Colin Rex pleaded guilty to 144 counts of sexual assault. He received a 20-year sentence for sexual assault and an additional three years for common assault. I asked Luke about sexual grooming. And he says it is the key to understanding 95% of sex offences against children. People need to recognise that five or less percent of child abuse cases is force used. When I talk about force, it's physical force, things like abductions, kidnappings, tying children up, etc. It's extremely rare. So in 19 cases out of 20, Luke Lambrecht says, an offender gains access to a child through deception. A long, systematic, impeccably planned process that will allow them control over children's minds and then children's bodies. Grooming is what sex offenders use to gain access to children without the use of physical force. And the vast majority of the overcoming of resistance is overcoming the resistance of the child through grooming. In order to groom children, you need access to them. Unlike the rest of us, these predators do not pursue a career out of interest or skill. They pick a career because children are there. First thing that parents need to be aware of is that the coach, the priest, the teacher, whoever it is that has access to children has chosen that career to give them access to children. So we call them career offenders. To be clear, most people who become coaches or priests or teachers or whatever do it for noble reasons. It's just that if you want to get a child under your spell, a coach or rabbi or teacher or something like that is what you become. Career offenders have careers so that they can groom children. 
There are six stages of sexual grooming, Luke tells me. Because they have careers that give them access to children, they can start the grooming process by choosing a child or a group of children as favorites. And they create favorites that move them outside of the boundary of profession into some kind of blurred personal relationship. They do it in various ways. You're in boarding, you don't have a dad, you're away from home, wanting to fulfill a father figure or be a friend to a child. If somebody's paying more attention to your child than you, you need to be very worried. From this point onwards, if the grooming is done well, the kid is trapped in a spiral of events beyond his or her control. The second thing they do is they start isolating children in quite insidious ways. They would take children away from a boarding house or take them away from choir practice so that they could have this kind of special relationship with them where they would be meeting some of that young person's real emotional needs, potentially some of their ambitions to be a great sportsman or whatever it is that the child loves. And they pull them away from their parents, pull them away from their peer groups. I was 11 when he started grooming me, and I was 12 when he raped me. This is Olivia Jazreel. When she was 10 years old, her parents are befriended by Bob Hewitt, a rock star tennis player who tells Olivia's mother and father that he likes what he sees. By his own admission in court, he identified that I didn't have a very good relationship with my parents. He also identified that they pushed me very hard. He got hold of me. He then asked me if I wanted him to coach me. He then went to my mom and offered my mom the service of coaching me with a promise that he would get me to Wimbledon. Every child has a dream. Every child watches TV, sees soccer on TV, sees various sports on TV, sees tennis on TV. They have a dream. And so a 10-year-old girl who is dreaming of Wimbledon starts her one-on-one instruction at the hands of Bob Hewitt. It would take decades to become public knowledge that Bob Hewitt is an A-grade scoundrel. In 2015, he was sentenced to six years in prison for raping a number of girls, including the 12-year-old Olivia. The top story then, former tennis star Bob Hewitt will spend six years behind bars for raping underage girls. This is SABC News. 75-year-old Hewitt was found guilty on two counts of rape and one of indecent assault on children he coached during the 80s and 90s. But decades before Olivia would get justice, Bob Hewitt's plan is set in motion. He starts to groom the 10-year-old Olivia And by the time she is 12, Bob Hewitt realizes she is ripe for the picking. The grooming then started with him having one-on-one talks with me, gaining his trust, speaking to me, as he put it, the birds and the bees, told me my mom had asked him to discuss it. So, So it's really just about the isolation of a person and then the secret. It's a depressing but common story. Career offenders... Coaches, teachers, reverence, whatever, pursue their dreams even more doggedly than the children in their care. Coaches put themselves in the position because it's such easy access to children. I think that a lot of parents are blindly trusting coaches. They leave their children with these coaches and the coaches are abusing their power. And that's just the bottom line. Olivia is right. Parents blindly trust coaches and teachers and boarding house masters. But what if we think differently? What if we accept that it is a given that there are career offenders in schools who are hiding in plain sight? We're back with expert witness Luke Lambrecht, who's explaining how career offenders entangle their prey. He says that sexual grooming starts to cross the line in stage three of six. The third part is the really complex part. 
They start engaging in what we call boundary or taboo violations. Now, a boundary violation, for example, if you take water polo and you take the evidence in the Parktown Boys High School case, you will see that the touching of penises in the water was seen as a way to put your opponents off and to get sort of the upper hand in the game and as a result win. So the grabbing of penises then became something that is taught so that if you blur the boundary in the pool, then when you're in the shower, the boundary is less. And those bodily boundaries that are normally in place, particularly for sort of adolescents who, you know, are quite private about their bodies, those start getting worn down. Other things they do which are very common is they will allow the young people to do things their parent wouldn't allow them to do, giving children marijuana, allowing them to go on tour and drink, introducing them to pornography which the young people might be finding on their own, but they've been introduced to it so they then become sexualized through the pornography. By stage four, the target is trapped in a secret, which is precisely the plan. They then start catching them in the shame of the secret. And we have to remember that the power behind abuse is the secret. The child, they struggle to tell anybody because they drank or they smoked marijuana or they've looked at porn. And that then becomes the power of abuse, which is the secret. Once secrecy has been established, the time is finally ripe for the predator to pounce. If they then think, okay, well, these boundaries can be violated, then they attempt to um, abuse the child, either in contact sexual abuse or in what we call non-contact sexual abuse, which is then engaging in online sex or virtual sex. That's either through sounds or pictures um, or text. There's a variety of ways I've seen. By stage six of six, the nightmare is complete. Not only has a child been sexually assaulted, they have been made to think that all of this is of their own making. They need to keep the secret, and the keeping of the secret becomes the big issue. Grooming allows the secret to be kept because there's a sense that the child feels complicit. In my view or experience, sure, it is unpleasant to be sexually assaulted. Mm. However, what really does the lasting damage is the grooming because it, it, for them to get away with it, they have to make you believe certain lies about yourself. Absolutely. The child has not consented, but kind of acquiesced, hasn't been able to say no. And that's where the big problem comes in, is that the saying no has become a huge issue in our prevention programs because we say to children that if somebody tries to touch on your private parts, you must say no. But there's this big setup in the beginning that makes saying no hard. And in addition to that, anybody who's listening to this who works with children or has their own children, if you can think of one context in which you actively encourage your children to say no to you, I will be surprised. We don't even allow children the ability to say no in safe environments. And because we've told them if someone tries to touch, you must say no, there's the guilt and the shame associated with it. They should have said no, they didn't say no, therefore in some way they are to blame. And I've had that with many young people that I, that I talk to. There's a sense of attributing the blame to the fact that they should have said no, but they didn't. The misery is compounded by the secrecy. It's kind of genius, in a sickening way. You start off in the plain sight of parents, because once the parents are used to you, they tend not to ask any questions. Your perpetrator manipulates you into thinking you are an equal party in a normal but secret relationship. That's exactly how it was for the 12-year-old Olivia Jazreel. I loved Bob Hewitt. I've, I've stated that categorically, it's on record, I loved him. I was in love with him. I thought I was having a relationship with him. I thought I was special. We are back at Grey High in PE, and now it has just turned 2003. In a few months' time, Tom Kruger's parents will celebrate his first birthday. In the historic Great Hall at Grey, I imagine the first assembly of the school year in January 2003. On the stage, with the other staff, Dean Carlson sits proudly, 
In the sea of children also sits young David Mackenzie. He is now fourteen years old, grade nine. And as he stares at the stage, I imagine he may be dreaming of water polo greatness. But by this point, the now twenty-one-year-old David Smith has grown too worried to stay quiet. In January 2003, he sends an email to then-headmaster Neil Crawford. To his email, he attaches some text messages from Dean Carlson, including the ones that express desire for juvenile threesomes and tossings of salads. Immediately, the text messages are regarded as being inauthentic, a fabrication. The school's attorney, Philip Shaw, now deceased, was also Dean's attorney. He arranges an appointment at MTN in PE, and my SIM card is submitted to scrutiny. And MTN finds that everything is authentic, that the text messages are not corrupted. The manner in which Gray investigates the complaint, I mean, it's just sort of like, you know, Dean, are you a pedophile? I vehemently deny it. There, he vehemently denies it, David. What do you want us to do now? It was, that's exactly what it was like. He was placed on cautionary suspension. He was asked to move out of the Gray High School hostel, but he was still allowed to coach boys in the afternoons. And he, he went to the Westbourne Oval for the school athletics day, which really um, sends a clear message to me that they're not really serious about pursuing these, these allegations against him. He must, in total, it must have been about a week and a half, two weeks of investigation. That was all done by Gray. There was no independent presiding officer. There was no charges presented to Dean. I was not asked to give a witness statement. I was certainly not cross-examined or interviewed or, you know, to, to try and solicit collateral information from me. If they did, they would have known, I would have told them that Dean and I used to have conversations about it, about him wanting to have child, uh, to have sex with children. I can't speak on behalf of the stupidity of other people. I don't know whether they just genuinely didn't see it or whether they just saw it and just refused to acknowledge it. So many people knew the story, so many people. And people would come up to me and they would say, but David, how is Gray allowing this to happen? They've got a person in the hostel. To their knowledge, they know that that person is a pedophile and yet they're okay with it. And the thing that pisses me off is that some people say like, gosh, This was a bolt out of the blue about Dean Carlsa. And I'm like, bullshit. This has been going on for 19, 20 years. Don't tell me that you didn't know about it. Dean was always regarded at Grey as being like the best thing since sliced white bread. He was just the greatest. He was never held accountable for his actions. And you know what it did? It just made him bolder. And so back off Dean Carlson trots to the hostel and the boys of Grey P.E. And now, gratuitously, I must pause our story in 2003 and rush us forward 15 years. Three months from now, Thomas will be dead. It is two months since David Mackenzie left St. Andrew's College, one month since he joined Grey College in Bloemfontein, and a week since Thomas Kruger decided to briefly join Grey High in P.E. Here's how it happens. We are in the rented Kruger family home in Port Elizabeth. Here's Tom's father, Shell Kruger. He came to me and he said, Dad, why don't I give Grey a bash? Grey High School in Port Elizabeth. We were just elated at the fact that he had approached us to say he'd like to go back to school. We wanted to strike while the iron was hot. So we go and have a meeting with the headmaster at Grey PE. He says there is a place available and they can accommodate Tom. When would he like to start? So he said it was literally the following week. And he started at uh, Grey PE. But if Tom's parents thought Grey PE would be a fresh start, Thomas quickly makes it clear to them that his heart belongs to another school. One that is 
also called Gray. He asks me on numerous occasions whether or not he can go to Gray College in Bloemfontein, based on the fact that Mr. McKenzie had promised to get him a full water polo bursary at Gray College. I said, absolutely not. And then it is the start of water polo season. Tom's younger brother is going to a polo tournament. It is being held at Gray College in Bloemfontein. The Kriegers decide to drive the seven hours up, and Thomas decides he will tag along. We arrive at the water polo pool at Gray College to be met by David McKenzie, and within less than five minutes, David McKenzie says he's taking Tom to go and look at accommodation that he's looking at renting. They were probably gone for three hours, and Tom arrived back with an unbelievably sheepish look on his face and with an ice cream in hand. We stayed in a B&B, so he was staying with us. He did ask if he could go out with Mackenzie the one night, and I said, absolutely not. I am back with expert witness Luke Lambrecht to ask him what it is about water polo that makes it so popular among predators. I don't think it's just water polo. I think that there's a level of socially sanctioned deviance associated with most sport in terms of the violation of body boundaries. But where I think the water sports have had an additional challenge associated with them is that things happen under the water. And it's this whole idea of, you know, in order for us to get an advantage, we need to catch people off guard or shame or humiliate or whatever. That's how you take advantage of your opponents, you know, put them off by grabbing their penis. But at the same time, that then gives an opportunity to the pedophile to be able to say, we need to toughen you up against this. In these investigations, something that riles me as a gay man is I ask probing questions about schools and whatever, and then people go, you know what, have a look at Mr. Black. He's gay. He's not married. Always been single. You are entirely confusing sexual pathology with sexual preference. People who are attracted to children and adolescents are pedophiles and hebephiles. They are not gay people. It is not a sexual preference. Gay people are attracted to other gay people. They're not attracted to children. Very often, predators don't have a sexual preference. They might have an age preference, they might have a hair color preference, they might have an eye color preference, whatever their particular fetish is. They don't have a preference for a gender of child. There's also this notion of if a boy gets abused by a man, there's something gay about it. The abuse of power and grooming is about gaining sexual access to children. It is for the needs of the offender. It has got nothing to do with the needs of the child. They are not attempting to meet any need in the child in terms of being touched or not touched. And what the grooming does in overcoming the resistance of the child, which is the point of grooming, is the reason it happens. So it's about paedophilia and hebephilia. It's not about that boy wanting to be touched. It's about the fact that it is the adult who needs their sexual needs met through a child. Even for a gay boy to have his penis touched by an adult male is also not what he wants. It's what the adult convinces the gay boy he wants as a way of a rite of passage into gayness, which he is struggling with. So neither the heterosexual nor the gay nor the, the boy in between who's still working out what he is or is not, none of them want to be touched by adult men. The confusion between abuse and sexuality, says Luke, has a calamitous impact on male survivors of sex abuse. All of that is what stops men talking. And when men don't talk out, men act out. Men become, men become addicts, they become violent, they do lots of things in order to self-medicate or they kill themselves. Ten minutes drive from Greyport Elizabeth to the ocean. In windy, even for PE Summerstrand, you will find Pearson High School and its famous water polo side. The coach at Pearson in 2018 is Dean Karlsen. After leaving Grey High for a stint at Westville Boys High in Durban, Karlsen returned to the Bay late in 2015. And then he starts to coach some polo players who remained behind when their previous coach left to join St Andrews College in Grahamstown. The coach was a man named David McKenzie. 
And now, on a Wednesday morning in August 2018, big news rocks the small water polo community. Dean Carlser is in trouble at Pearson High in Windy Summer Strand. Oh shit, there's trouble in Pearson again. I don't know what uh, Dean Carlson has done now, but it uh, looks like he's, he's done it, he's done it, he's done it. It seems clear to me that there's a big, big problem under the water. For example, last Saturday, five days ago, a group of high school girls leave Johannesburg, bound for Ghana in West Africa, with a controversial coach in charge of them. Before the coach leaves the country with the children, a number of people petition Swimming South Africa to bar the coach from traveling with the girls. But Swimming SA is having none of it and basically tells everyone to shove it. Last Thursday, two days before the girls' departure, News24 sent Swimming SA a list of 16 questions. They include, are you aware of a criminal charge or charges against Coach X? Are you aware of other accusations of sex abuse leveled against him? Is Swimming SA comfortable sending him on the trip with children considering investigations and accusations leveled against him? Are you 100% confident that he will not groom or abuse any children while accompanying them to Ghana? And if he is found to have groomed or abused any children while accompanying them to Ghana, do you accept that you will be held criminally liable both collectively and severally? In a two-paragraph response, Sean Adrianser, the CEO of Swimming SA, ignores the questions, but says the organization is, quote, extremely sensitive towards any improper conduct, and in particular sexual conduct relating to a minor, end quote, and insists that it, quote, acts without hesitation when dealing with such matters, end quote. In the second paragraph, Swimming SA says that it, quote, received a complaint that relates back approximately 40 years when both the complainant and the accused were junior athletes, end quote. It says that a disciplinary inquiry had been scheduled, but it couldn't go ahead because the complainant wanted to wait for the finalization of a criminal investigation. Quote, noting the requirements of the Criminal Procedure Act, you will appreciate that Swimming SA is unable to comment as the rights of all parties related to this matter needs to be protected so as not to compromise the judicial process, end quote. Here's what CEO Sean Arianser is not answering. Whether he thinks a coach accused of child rape should be allowed to leave the country with children. This week, we will send more questions to Swimming SA. In the interests of the thousands of children whom Swimming SA are supposed to keep safe, we fervently hope that CEO Sean Adrianser will answer our pressing questions in the public interest. In the meantime, as of yesterday, Wednesday, 13 October 2021, the girls and the coach accused of child rape remain together at a gala event in Ghana. If, in the past week, I was disappointed by Swimming SA, my heart was a flutter with other news from the eastern seaboard of South Africa. A young woman who heard this podcast discloses to a former teacher that she had also been touched at high school by her water polo coach, a coach who still remains with the school to this day. It's the same agenda that Richard Leach disclosed to us last time. The polo coach grabs a player's swimsuit and then uses the ensuing underwater drama to touch the genitals of a child. Later, two more women disclose similar abuse by the same water polo coach. The teacher involved has also been listening to the podcast, has also heard the words of beloved social worker Lisa Wilkin. It's completely illegal that they do need to report it. There's no way to get around it. There's no other way to say it. it it's, I mean, why would you not report this? The teacher writes up a letter to the South African Council for Educators and with the young woman's permission, tells me about it too. When I hear the coach's name, my blood runs cold. I have heard of this man before. We are close to identifying the polo coach in the public interest, but before I can tell you his name and where he works, we need one more thing to fall into place. 
we must make sure that we prevent any further harm to the man's potential current victims. Do watch the space. I'll update you as soon as it is safe to. What I can tell you is that the coach is a member of Mackenzie's water polo circle. As a matter of fact, he was one of the first to be notified by Mackenzie that there's trouble at Pearson again. You may well ask just how I got my hands on so many conversations between David Mackenzie and mountains of people. How do I know so much about his whereabouts at various crucial points in our story? The answer is... Deep Throat. And so it is time I introduce you to Deep Throat, who is one of the characters this story is about. Deep Throat, I can now tell you, is not a person. Deep Throat is an iPhone. David McKenzie's iPhone. This is how I got hold of it. It is March 2019, and we are in a Bloemfontein suburb named Pentagon Park. For two months now, it's been the home of David McKenzie and his new wife. But this morning, there's a surprise at a townhouse in Pentagon Park. The police are there to raid it. When the police depart, they have seized a number of objects, including Mackenzie's iPhone. It gets sent back to the Eastern Cape. The police have a quick look for child porn. And when they don't find any, they send the devices to the evidence archive. And there it would lie, gathering dust, even as a trove of evidence lurks in its innards. Then finally, in March 2021, a major breakthrough. We are advised of a lawful way to have the contents of Mackenzie's iPhone released to Tom Kruger's father, Shal Kruger. And then Shal Kruger gave it to us. And so, it is seven months ago, on my stoop in Johannesburg. After months of glacial progress, I suddenly sit with thousands of answers, all in one place. This one place being a PDF of 15,000 pages, along with thousands of raw images and voice notes and videos. The majority of it is from WhatsApp. I am now in possession of almost every WhatsApp message sent and received by David McKenzie for nine crucial months. Every image sent. Every image requested. Every voice note recorded and received from the morning he left St. Andrews College to the morning nine months later when it was seized by the police in Bloemfontein. This is more than a trove. These are the Pentagon Papers of Grooming. They are the Gupta emails and WikiLeaks in the hands of a brutally disorganized man. Me. The hard drive, which I nicknamed Deep Threat, provides a first-hand account of the circumstances surrounding Mackenzie's departure from St. Andrew's College and of the final few months of Thomas Kruger's life. It also contains conversations between teachers and coaches that no one was ever supposed to see. Teachers and coaches who are scattered across schools and swimming pools and sports fields and, who knows, maybe even a choir or a drama production or two. All shapes, all sizes, teachers and coaches in a dozen schools all over. The McKenzie Tapes. Next time on My Only Story. Today on News24.com, we publish details of some of the 80,000 WhatsApps that have been reviewed by My Only Story and News24. Please go have a read and let us know your thoughts via myonlystory.org. In the two weeks since our last episode, the rumor mills have been deafening in the Eastern Cape. And up in Johannesburg last week, David McKenzie attended a disciplinary hearing initiated by Red and Bedford View. Here he is not speaking to News 24's Sasona Nkakamba outside his disciplinary hearing next to Monte Cassino in four ways. How are you feeling, Mr. McKenzie? How are you feeling, sir? 
In the footage, we can see David McKenzie outside an office block. When he notices that News24 is filming him, he takes out his phone and films them back. Three days later, that's one week ago, the independent advocate who chaired proceedings delivers her decision. The principal of Red and Bedford View, Stephen Hasley, announces in a letter to parents that Mackenzie has been fired. Quote, Mr. Mackenzie was found guilty of gross dishonesty and misrepresentation in that he did not disclose to Redham the circumstances surrounding his departure from St. Andrew's College in the face of misconduct allegations. Furthermore, Mr. Mackenzie was also found guilty of disregarding Redham's interests and not being honest about the allegations that had been made against him in the media. In her findings, the chairperson also indicated that Mr. Mackenzie was incompatible with Redham and its values. End quote. The children of Redham Bedford View returned from holiday this past Tuesday. None of them will be taught or coached by Mackenzie again. The following is specifically for all Mackenzie's former students at Redham. If he has sent you messages, please tell your parents or an adult you trust. Last Monday, while Mackenzie was being judged in Johannesburg, it was a big day in Grahamstown too. Very good afternoon, His Majesty the King, Right Reverend Bishop Ebenezer. The final day of an annual shindig named Balloon Week. Mr. Jacko Marie, our Chairman of Council, members of Council, staff, parents and of course the boys of college. We are in the historic chapel designed by Sir Herbert Baker. As we review the year of 2021, we cannot do so without recognising the challenges that we face this year. When Headmaster Alan Thompson addresses the Assembly, it seems to be clear that the tide has turned. Including, of course, COVID, economic and political instability, service delivery and service delivery protest, and of course, scandal. The magnitude of the McKenzie scandal is now being acknowledged by college. I shan't dwell on these things, but I must acknowledge recent events, and I assure the community that we are working extremely hard to approach all that has been said and all the allegations that have been made with integrity, honesty and courage, and to commit to a process of truth-seeking and healing. If Headmaster Thompson's remarks are a small but certain nod, the school governing body's chairman, Jacko Maria, faces the scandal head-on. When Chairman Maria addresses the parents at speech day, he starts with the elephant in the room. I'd like to start by addressing the ongoing News24 expose about Thomas Kruger's tragic death, David McKenzie's behaviour as a teacher and subsequent departure from college, and incidents of lashing and fighting. There is some criticism of us and of me. Most of us probably feel that the drip feeding of sensational information and opinions and the style of reporting is unfair and that the portrayal of St. Andrew's College certainly does not reflect our lived experience of the school. Jacko Maria defends the school's conduct in the investigation so far. We have tried to be professional in our response. We've been transparent and answered many questions in what feels like a trial by media. But then... Chairman Maria makes an important concession. As painful and as difficult as it has been to see the school's good name being attacked, the harsh reality is that the reporting does expose certain incidents which have no place in our school. Chairman Maria says he would like to believe the incidents we've reported so far were, quote, isolated and not widespread occurrences, end quote. However, we cannot draw conclusions until Council has conducted a full review of all the evidence and allegations. Following the review, Council will also consider amendments and additions to the school's policies and management practices. Personally, I believe that we have to find better ways to ensure that boys and parents are prepared to speak out when they experience inappropriate behaviour or incidents. We have to eliminate the fear of being labelled a snitch. Jim and Maria says the school has a long history of acting when wrongdoing is exposed. We have to build our support structures and the programmes which help boys to differentiate clearly between right and wrong and between acceptable and unacceptable behaviour. These include any so-called traditions which don't have a place in today's world. Two days ago, Tuesday, the school sent another letter to the Andrian community. 
It is not written by Headmaster Alan Thompson, but by Chairman Jacob Maria. In the letter, Chairman Maria announces that retired Judge Dalen Chetty has agreed to be the independent chair of the review board into the actions of all parties to the McKenzie affair. And in an open letter to a parent included in the communication, Chairman Maria finally expresses disappointment in David McKenzie. Quote, In closing, as a St. Andrews College community, we are deeply shocked and angered by the behavior of an educator entrusted with the care and development of our boys. We trust that, should any allegations of sexual misconduct be found to be true, Mr. McKenzie will feel the full legal consequences of his actions. End quote. Meanwhile, in Wendy Summerstrand, the principal of Pearson High School refused to answer any questions. In response to detailed questions sent Monday about both Dean Carlser and David McKenzie's tenures at Pearson, Principal Hila Roo sent a one-sentence response yesterday afternoon. Quote, As per our Department of Education's protocol, all questions and queries of the media must be referred directly to the district director. End quote. Once we receive reaction from Mrs. Rue's district director, it will be included in reporting at news24.com. Still, Mrs. Hilaru's response was still a sentence longer than Neil Crawford's. He was the headmaster of Grey High when David Smith reported Dean Carlson. Despite reading our questions on WhatsApp, he has yet to respond. But the current administration of Grey High has taken a more open approach. In response to questions about Mackenzie and Carlson, the school governing body said that it, quote, notes and supports the investigation by News24 and My Only Story into the behaviour of teachers and coaches at South African schools. It also commends the responsible and sensitive manner in which these allegations have been treated by the press to date. End quote. It says that, quote, it was obviously with a sense of dismay that the leadership of the school learned recently of allegations of impropriety concerning Carlser and his arrest in Australia. Suffice it to say, the school is appalled by the allegations which, if true, should be subject to the full force of the law. The school itself has treated the allegations with the gravity they deserve and has notified the appropriate authorities, those being the Department of Education and the Child Protection Services of the SAPS. End quote. But, says the school, it is unable to comment on alleged events from two decades ago. Quote, Given the passage of time, the persons who may be able to shed further light on the matter and, indeed, answer the questions you have posed, are no longer at the school. It is suggested that you approach such persons as you may identify directly. The present leadership is simply not able to assist you in answering these questions. Parents, pupils and the grey community at large can be assured that with the aid of sophisticated monitoring systems and protocols, inappropriate behaviour of this nature is most unlikely to occur. End quote. Grey High seems to be saying, Ask Neil Crawford. We'll tell you what Neil Crawford says the moment that he says something. Finally, Dean Carlser. He's still behind bars in Australia, and when we reached out to his legal team on the Sunshine Coast, we were told he'd changed his lawyers. We have sent questions to his new lawyer, who told News24 on the phone, What business do I have with South Africa's News24? We are looking forward to Dean Corals' response. My Only Story is written and edited by me, Dion Wiggett. The executive producer is Alison Pope. The associate producer is Noctula Magnati. And the sound engineer is Sean Jeffress. The original score is by Charles Johann Lingenfelder. Our artwork is by Kalla Kreuser. Additional reporting by News24's Sisolnan Trakamba. Their production manager is Charlene Ruet, and their editor-in-chief, Adrian Basson, is our editorial advisor. Special thanks to this episode goes to Sheldon Marias, Mpo Labadife, Marvin Charles, and Lisa Lee Solomons. Whoever you are, please continue sending me your information and your tip-offs. You can contact me completely confidentially at myonlystory.org or message us on WhatsApp or Telegram on 071-382-7030. MyOnlyStory.org is also the place to go for bonus materials and loads of resources about recovering from sexual abuse. At MyOnlyStory.org, 
there are loads of links to people to talk to, depending on where you are in the world. If you're in South Africa, you can always, always phone SADAG on 0800 456 789. It's sequential and easy to remember. 0800 456 789. My Only Story is out every Thursday at 5am South African time. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow the developments all week long at news24.com. This project was supported by Truth First and is made possible by contributions from people like you. This has been a co-production of the My Only Story non-profit company and News24.